Now, as we get underway, have you ever been in one of those situations where you have a friend that you're talking with, maybe at school or maybe at work or a family member, a spouse, whatever, and, and you're sharing how somebody has wronged you? And, and you're saying, you know what, they did this and this and this, and they owe me an apology. And I want an apology from them. And so you, you share that. And then eventually that person comes to you, and you have a conversation, and afterwards you go back to the people that you said they owed you an apology, and you go, you know what, they didn't apologize. They came, and all they did was explain why they did it. They defended themselves. They did not ask for my forgiveness. That's not an apology, right? And you're kind of bothered by it. Here's the reality. That is an apology, The reality is that word apology, and and for most of human history, the way it was used was to come and to give a defense of why you did what you did, to defend your actions, to defend your words, to defend your thoughts. That word apology really has meant that for the greater course of human history. It's only been recently we've sort of twisted it around a little bit to kind of invoke the idea of, no, when you apologize to me, you just take ownership, you don't explain yourself, and you beg for my forgiveness, and I'll consider whether I give it back. Right? So, like, like that's apology to us today, but that's not typically the way it's been understood. An apology is, in fact, to make a defense to give an explanation, to help bring clarity where there wasn't clarity before. That is the essence of apology. In fact, this is why in Christian circles we call defending the faith apologetics. It comes from this Greek word that means to defend. In fact, in our text this morning in 1 Peter 3, that's the word Peter's going to use. He's going to encourage all of us as followers of Christ to have an apology, a, a defense, an explanation of our faith for the hope that lies within us. That is our heart this morning, to unpack that. But here's my encouragement, and this is where I want to keep it in the spirit of First Peter. See, I think sometimes when we deal with the topic of defending our faith, we sort of approach it in a defensive way. We feel like our back is against the cultural wall. We, we feel like there's this pressure. And therefore, when we go to explain, sometimes we're, we're interpreted as almost being a little edgy or hostile or why don't atheists get it or atheists are so stupid, this, this, this. And we, we sound defensive. And, and yet that's not Peter's heart for us. Right? Peter wants us to have an apologetic that is a compelling apologetic where people look at our lives and they look at our faith and they go, there's something about that. There's something deeper, more profound. I'm drawn to that in some strange way because it seems legitimate to their life. That is a powerful apologetic. And I believe that that is the apologetic that Peter is going to encourage us in today. Not to so much have an irrefutable argument, but rather to have a very definitive and undeniable life. Where, where people look and go, yeah, I, I don't even agree with your faith, but boy, you're sincere about it. It, it. it coats everything in your life. It really is the center of what you do. That, that's the heart that Peter's going to have. Now, if we remember up to this point in Peter, Peter has um, been very helpful in taking the richness of the gospel and, and showing us how to apply that then in very practical sorts of ways. And so if we go all the way back the last few weeks, he said, all right, here's how we conduct ourselves in society at large. And here's how we handle government. And here's how we handle master-slave relationships and work and labor and that kind of thing. And here's how wives function in light of the gospel. Here's how husbands function in light of the gospel. Then we looked at last week how the church is to love one another with brotherly love and sacrifice because that demonstrates the power of the gospel. And 
we are to love the culture around us. Even when they curse us, we bless them. These are all these outplays of the gospel, that it's changed people's lives. And with that, Peter continues in verse 13. And he's being very practical. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Right, he's already told us, here's how you have a happy and good life. Just watch your words, watch your works, watch your witness. And if you do that, if you just want to live a good, simple life, who's going to mess with you if you do that? See, he's being practical because, again, uh, he's facing an environment where uh, Christians are more and more uh, feeling that pressure of a pagan culture closing in around them. And they're, they're seeing them as bigoted or biased or hateful or whatever. And, and so Peter's encouraging the Christians, man, don't, don't start engaging all kinds of crazy things. Just be zealous for what is good. Just be a really great person in your culture. Be a compelling personality. And, and it's going to go generally pretty well for you. See, I, I think about this, who here, how many of you know Perry Kirsten? How many know Perry, all right? Nicest human being on the planet, all right? Like, like I, I was thinking about her this week, right? And I'm like, Perry is that person. Like, I can't imagine her having an enemy, ever. Like, I feel like we should fly her to D.C., and by the end of the day, like, Congress would all be getting along, right? Because Perry just like, oh, let's just, here, I'll bake you some bread, you know? I'll hang out with you. Every, let's hug. You know, like, like she's that. She's just good-hearted and kind and, and, and no enemies because she's so kind. She's probably blushing now. Like, he's talking about me. Stop talking. Right? But, but that's who she is. And, and that's what we should be. We should strive to be that kind of peacemaking, compassionate, caring person. Right? Because Peter says, how can you have enemies when you do that? Who's going to look to bring you harm if you're being like that? But then he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you shall be blessed. So he says, work hard to not get into trouble. But if there are people that still dislike you for your faith, for your righteousness, he says, you'll be blessed. And so start to own that. See, I think a lot of times the problems that we uh, find in life, the relational conflicts are sort of self-inflicted. We may not have started it, but, but somebody wrongs us and then we get hurt and then we have an attitude about them and we have a response in our heart or mind or we share with others and we, we kind of establish conflicts. I think that is a little bit of the problem that all humans have. I know I have it. But sometimes, some conflicts are not because we instigated it and not because of our humanness. Some conflicts are purely going to be for Christians. Um, you claim the name Christ. That's enough of a reason for me to not like you. I think right now we are in a culture that there are certain segments that as soon as you say, I'm a Christian, it's going to be instantly like, there's an opinion of you. And it doesn't matter how nice you are, they're still going to look at you in the negative. I mean, I think about people like Tim Tebow. How did he end up with enemies? Like, there was literally people that were like, I hate Tim Tebow. I'm like, why? He's like the nicest guy. You know, and they're like, well, because he's always ramming his Christianity down everybody's throat. I'm like, I've seen him ram a ball down a field. But I, like, I've never seen him ram his faith. I've never seen him be judgmental. I've never seen him be mean. It was just simply that he was proud of Jesus. And that was enough for people to go, I don't like him. So that is going to happen sometimes, right? Just because you bear the name of Christ 
you're going to face some challenge. And, and Peter says that. He goes, but if that's why you face challenge, if that's why your suffering is because you are proud of Jesus and the world around you doesn't like that you're proud of Jesus, he says, for that you will still be blessed. You'll be blessed. I think Peter is remembering words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 6, right? Peter would have been front row center when Jesus gave the Beatitudes. And in Luke 6, he gives the Beatitude, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so they did this to the fathers who came before us, the prophets. Now I read that and I go, man, that is a great verse. That's a great text. Here's the challenge though. How do we get there? Right? How, do, how do we get to that point where we go, yes, when, when the culture around me mocks my faith, that I leap for joy? How do we get to a point where we go, uh, I'm blessed if I'm hated or reviled or mocked or any of the other words that are used here? How do you get to that point? See, here's what I'm learning very slowly in, in my own just personal walk with Christ. Um, these kinds of things, these are to me are the hardest verses, right? These are the hard ones. The easy ones are the do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal. Those are easy in comparison to this. Because this demands something of our emotion, right? This demands that inner core of our person to have buy-in. So how do you get there? The answer is easy and hard. I am convinced that the way we get there is we more and more beg God to create in us a deep passion for him. Like a legitimate deep passion. Like we go, God, I'm just not satisfied with the status quo. I want you to lay heaven in my soul. I want to be so certain of eternity, so certain of reward, so certain of eternal blessing in all ways that I will take the mockery or the despising or the whatever in this life because I am certain you reward those things. But it means we have to really be like going to God every day. God, I want to know you in that way with that passion. I want to be that convinced and that on fire for you. I want to be that desirous of the things that you desire. That is a spiritual thing. That is not just, hey, go do these five points, six steps, seven ways, and you're good. It's this other thing altogether of desperation for God. Uh, this week I was reading um, one of my favorite books of all time. It's called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by a guy named Henry School. wrote it like 600 years ago. And, and I'm just reading through it, and, and I just see the desperation of his heart. And he's like, I need this God. I desire him above all else. For when you get to that point, he talks about how all of your passions are shaped. All of your desires are retailored to loving what God loves in the most profound way. And, and I look at this and I go, that's the only way we're going to get there. Is that we have eternal convictions uh, because eternity has just really been laid in our heart. And again, that's not something that we go and manufacture. That's something that only the Spirit can produce in us. To where we leap for joy. And we go, yes, this is great. Because I know the bigger picture. This is why Peter says, you know what, even if they do this, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. He goes on to say, and this is why I think it really begins to kind of show the rooting of our apologetic. 
He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Therefore, he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, right here is the beginning of our apologetic. Our apologetic, the defense of our faith, begins with our relationship to God. And so I, I look at this and I go, okay, so the first thing is, do not fear the world around us. And that's huge because we're good at fearing the world around us. We're good at fear. Our world's good at fear. Just go home after church today, turn on the news. It'll give you all kinds of reasons to fear. Right? Every single news service will let you know the impending doom or danger of something. And by the end of you, like, I just, I'm afraid. Right? Like, it's easy to do. And, and, and Peter says, you know what, no. Don't be afraid. I think about it, I was reading Hebrews this week. And Hebrews has this great little passage in chapter 13, verse 6. He says, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Right? And, and that's the attitude. Right? The more we press into God, the more we go, there's nothing else to fear. God's got it handled. God's in control. The other part is that second half of the verse where he says, but honor Christ in your hearts as Lord. Honor him as holy. Right? Some versions will say, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. And again, it's that idea of saying, you know what? Uh, it's not that God is this satellite around my life. It's that, no, God is the center of everything. I honor him in everything. I desire him in everything. I seek his counsel in everything. This is why I go back to, this is the rooting of our apologetic. If that isn't true, if God isn't big, if God isn't all-consuming for us, the rest of this stuff will kind of just float out there and we'll never be able to pull it in like we would hope to. Because, again, um, this requires more than just raw determination. This requires an absolute need of God. A need. A sense of broken every day. I, I, I want to be spilled out for you. Right? That's the essence and heart behind this. And so when we do that, th then we're motivated by something more deep. When we start to give the defense for the hope that lies within us, we can legitimately say it's because there's hope that lies within us. There's a real relationship there that governs everything I do. Everything. So I bring it back to that need for the passion for Christ, right? Honor in your heart Christ as Lord, as holy in all that you do. Just that's the center. That's the center. From there, Peter says, always, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Right? This is that next step of our apologetic. The first is, man, it's got to be rooted. Right? We don't fear them, we have God. We honor God in all that we do. We honor Christ in everything. That's the root. But then from there, we need a reason. Always have a reason. It doesn't say the reason. It says a reason. There are all sorts of reasons you can have. Because here's the thing. Our faith is a reasonable faith. Faith is trust in an unseen God, but it's not blind faith. We have reasons for our belief. And we should know, as individual Christians, what are some of my reasons? Right? What makes me tick on this? There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, I look at the Bible, for example, and I go, you know, if you just live the Bible, you're going to have a pretty good life. It's, it's clean living. That's a good reason. When somebody says, well, why do you believe you? I, the Bible, when you do what it says, life goes pretty well for you. 
That's a reason. Or for those of you that love science, you just look at the sheer magnitude of creativity in the universe and you look at all of the engineering and you go, you know what, there's just no way I believe this could be by chance. I I have a reason, which is I just look around. It's too masterful for me to doubt the existence of God. Those are reasons, right? Another reason I, I, I sometimes look at is every culture seems to have the same moral code. Why? Why such diverse ideas about other things in culture? But boy, the moral code is very familiar to all people groups. Why does that happen? Well, again, because God has written the law on the heart. It's a reason. So know your reason. So when somebody says, hey, man, why do you do this? You go, well, here's, here's my reason. You may say, well, I don't, I don't know if I fully have a reason. Well, here's a good one. Um, the gospel itself is a good reason. Right? It's a reasonable message, and it is a good reason to proclaim. And here's the best thing, because sometimes I think when we talk about apologetics, we go, how do I convince unbelievers to believe? And let me help you. Your job really isn't to convince them. Your job is to share. Your job is to be open. Your job is to um, give a reason, right? But you don't have to convince And I find that one of the most powerful ways that we can do this whole task is to simply share the gospel. Because the cool thing about the gospel is Paul says it has power. Right? It has power. I mean, you know, my arguments from science or from ethics, those are fine, but they don't have the power that the gospel has. That's a message that the Holy Spirit works in a person, gets into the undercarriage, and begins to shape how they understand it. And that's where we need to get to more and more, right? Sharing the gospel. In fact, uh, I had come across this quote recently. I'd heard, actually, uh, Alistair Begg used it. And I loved it, particular for this message. And, and it's actually from Spurgeon. And, and Spurgeon's talking about the gospel. And this is what he says. And I think this is why the gospel is a great apologetic in and of itself. It's a reason and it has power. And we should just share the gospel. He says, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. He says, no doubt it's a very right and proper thing to do, yet I always notice that when when there are most books of this kind, it is because the gospel itself is not being preached. He says, when people start to defend the gospel, usually it's because they're not really just preaching the gospel. He says, maybe that's what we should get to. So he says, suppose a number of persons were to take it upon themselves that they needed to defend a lion. There, he's in the cage, And here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. He says, well, I would suggest to them if they would not object and they wouldn't feel that it was too humbling for them that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. He says, I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of it himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind defending Deuteronomy, the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all of his adversaries. See, that's kind of how simple it is. Have a reason. The best reason is the gospel. It changed my life. That's what I can tell you. And, And here's how it can change your life. And then there's power. Have a reason, right? Because your faith is reasonable. He also says, have a reason for the hope. For the hope that is within you. Now, here's what I think is 
true to this, means our faith has to be legitimately real, right? Not just rooted, not just reasonable, but real. Because I look around right now and I go, man, hope is hard to come by. It's just hard to come by. Uh, people increasingly struggle with the notion that there's even real hope out there. Uh, I've been talking with my kids, right? They're a part of the millennial generation. And, and I've been kind of looking at the stories that these kids like and connect with. And they're all depressing. Like, they're all depressing. I, if, as soon as they're reading a book, I'm like, okay, does she die of cancer in the end? Just tell me. You know, and they're, yeah, she dies of cancer. Yeah, like the other 55 books, right? So, like, like there's this, like, oh, no, we gravitate to dread, and depression and sadness and grief because it's such real pain, man, you know? And I'm like, what about hope? We, we went and saw um, Tomorrowland the other night and I thought, man, this movie's gonna flop because it, it, it kind of preaches hope. Like, kids aren't gonna like this. Come on, now, the, the girl needs to die of cancer at the end and then it's gonna be a blockbuster, you know? Or somebody's got to be brooding through the whole movie just to have no hope. And it's like, okay, let's all go see that. That's so fun to watch. You know, like, it's not there. So it's not going to do well. But I believe at the core what people need is hope. And, and I find that unfortunately sometimes people don't necessarily go, oh, Christians are the first place to look for hope. Because sometimes we're the ones just, oh, I love Jesus. Right? Like, we don't magnify hope. I've shared with you many times, I struggle with pessimism. I mean, how sick and twisted is that? Right? It's like, uh, so Matt, where are you going when you die? Heaven. You know? You hopeful? Of course. You know, like, like I'm overjoyed. Yeah, I, like, wait, I know Jesus. I, I'm, I'm, I have an eternal guarantee in him. I, but why am I not more hopeful about things? I know that all things work to good for those who love God. I should be hopeful all the time. Why am I not hopeful all the time? Because I'm not setting my affections on Christ in a daily way to where he sets heaven in my soul and that brings hope. That's, it's that simple again. I'm bringing it back to the apologetic is rooted in a deep, abiding, personal, daily walk with Christ in which hope erupts. A reason erupts. Faith erupts. People can look and go, wow, there's something about you that's different. That is my greatest concern. People will say, oh, man, Christians are getting persecuted in our culture. The government's trying to shut down Christian expression. You know what? I, I look at that and I go, who cares? Here's what I mean by that. Um, that may, in fact, be happening. My greatest concern isn't that happening. My greatest concern is that we as Christians just sort of have a ho-hum Christianity and we're not making an impact because we're not impacted that much. You know, we're just kind of like, no, I, I have a faith and I go to church and I read my Bible and it's really good, but there's nothing about us that's different. That, that's my greater concern. My greater concern is that we talk of things like hope and joy and peace, but we don't experience it. That's my greater fear, that we're just sort of immobile in our faith. That's, that's my concern, because that's my own personal concern at times. I'm like, why? Do I seem different? Do I respond different? Would people look at me and say, wow, you seem really just joyful and stable all the time because of something. What's the something? See, that, that's, that's where we need to set our sights, so that we will have a reason for the hope that is within us, right? That's what's needed. 
On top of that, not only does it need to be real and rooted and have a sense of reasonableness about it, but it also has to be a relational apologetic. Right? He says, have a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Right? That's relational. And this is why I said even at the beginning that sometimes in um, our apologetic, um, we sound more like we're defensive than giving an explanation. And that's why I want to make sure we, we conduct ourselves in our culture in such a way that we do good to the culture, we're a benefit to the culture, we're helpful in those ways. And when we do talk about our faith, we don't act as though we have it all figured out and all solved, but rather we are, we are kind, we are generous, we're understanding. If you have an unbelieving friend that you're talking with, when you begin to, quote, defend your faith, really you're just articulating, you're clarifying, and, and they don't feel like you're trying to win, because the heart isn't to win the argument, it's to win the person, correct? And it's very easy to let our ego get in the way. It's very easy to say, I, I want to fight now because you have an issue with my faith and I'm taking it personal and we got to even learn to not take it so personal and say, wait, okay, wait, I, I just want to clarify and I want to be your friend. And if you curse me, I'm, I'm going to bless you anyway. That'll throw them off, right? But that is all modeling our hope, it's modeling our gospel, it's modeling what it is that we care about. So it has to be relational. So ask them questions. If you have friends in your world that you know don't like Christians, ask them why. Say why, what? I'm just curious. I mean, I'm not here to get on your case about it. I was just curious, you must have had a bad experience or you've seen something in the news or there's just something that doesn't sit right. I, I can take it, so share it with me. That's a powerful way to do it. Because you're showing respect, you're being gentle, and that's going to be helpful. See, these are all parts of our apologetic. But then Peter says something that I think is of great value to us in verse 16. He says, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. This is the last part of it, a good conscience. Um, a conscience is a weird deal. Like, I, you know, sometimes we're like, well, is that just the Jiminy Cricket in all of us? Like, what's the conscience? You know, what, what, what does it look like? What does it function as? What is it designed to do? Because I think a good conscience is going to be part of the underlying key of this delight in God, this desperation for him. Because if the conscience is out of whack, it's going to inform our spiritual person in wrong ways. If the conscience is properly aligned, it's totally different. In fact, um, I was thinking about it this week. My daughter went to Haiti uh, about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, I think it is now, uh, and it was mandatory that she had one of these, right? This is a very simple water filtration system. It's a filter, right? Because they're like, man, the water there, you can't trust any of it, so you're going to need this. This is your life in Haiti, right? You don't have this, you are out of luck fast, and you're going to have all kinds of struggles. And in that sense, that's what the conscience is. God gives conscience as a filter to our life. Right? And so it's designed to keep the contaminants out. It's designed to keep us healthy within. That's the conscience. Right? So even in Romans chapter 2, this is what Paul talks about. He says, you know, uh, the conscience is that law written on the heart. So that those who don't even know the law, the Gentiles who have never seen the law, didn't read the law, didn't understand the law, they do things, they make decisions based on this internal law written in the heart. 
So it either condemns them or it excuses them. That's conscience. Right? So that's what it's designed to do. What I would go a step further with is to say, you know what, um, there are two things that can happen with the conscience. One is that we can uh, have a conscience that is clean and, and, and always being cleaned, so to speak. Right? It's that, that, that the component that, that drives everything. And we have a responsibility to that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, starts in verse 21. It says, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. See, I, I look at that and there's... It's true that when we come to Christ, uh, our conscience is cleansed. But what is also true is that we almost have to have this daily approach that says, you know what, I'm always going to press into Christ. I'm always going to be drawing near so that that conscience stays healthy, stays pure, stays clean. So that when I interact with the world around me, the conscience guides me properly. But this is predicated on proximity to Christ, right? We're always seeking because the danger is, is if we don't do that, we can also clog or corrupt the conscience. In fact, in Titus chapter one, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience, those are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Just as much as we can have a healthy conscience, we can have an unhealthy conscience. And when our conscience is unhealthy, it creates all sorts of burden, right? And you wouldn't even think it could do this. Like, you might go, this is just a secret pet sin over here. It's not affecting the whole. No, it always affects the whole. Because it affects the conscience and an ill-informed conscience or corrupted conscience then takes us down paths, again, that are always going to be destructive in the big picture. And so when Peter says, have a good conscience, he's saying that core in you has to be God-oriented and God-word-focused. Otherwise, it will take you down terrible, terrible paths. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, the eye, of, uh, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body in verse 22. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. And in, uh, if then that light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What he's saying is what you take in, what you ingest, what you inform yourself with, that will affect your conscience. That will write the code in there. That will reorient it in wrong ways. And it was interesting. I, I was going to have my kids do it this week, and we didn't have a chance to do it. Um, but I, I did it on my own one evening. I, I just took 30 minutes, and I went through 15 channels, two minutes per channel, and just was like, what's the content? What's the show? What's the theme of the show? What's the content in that little bit? You should try it. You'll be surprised. If you just have a pad of paper, you'll instantly go, uh, well, this is all about murder, and then this one's just about people having affairs, and this is just about scandals, and this is just about, you know, like, You'll be hard-pressed. You'll have to get to, like, HGTV before you get some relief, you know? Like, oh, Food Network, okay, maybe, maybe even then, who knows, right? So, like, and you're just, all of that writes on our conscience. All of it, 
right? Every night we sit down, we turn on the television, and it's just writing on the conscience. You may say, no, it's not. Sure it is. Sure it is. Right? We, we almost can't help it. What we take in, the, the eye is the lamp of the body, and what we take in writes into our conscience. This is something that even as a family, we've, uh, we've decided to embrace. We called it a technology fast. It wasn't the right uh, phrase. Uh, we're, we're doing a content fast more than a technology fast. But the content fast is saying, you know what, we're only going to listen to Christian music. And uh, we're, we're only going to watch certain shows as a family that are family kind of oriented and encouraging. And we're going to do that all summer long. And we're going to see how we feel at the end. We're just going to test this out. And, and, and we've only done it for a short time, but I can tell you already, it has an impact. Like, wow, I, I just feel better. It's like, it's, like, it's like eating your spinach, you know? It's like, it's, it, it just lightens some of the load. And it reorients the thinking. And it changes that perspective, even on the idea of hope. Because again, like I said, so many shows are hopeless. So many things are just guiding us in ways that are discouraging. I mean, honestly, there are like some shows. I used to be a big fan of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, right? I didn't miss it at all. Now you're judging me for it, I know. And, um, and, and I used to watch it just religiously. But I also found that I was very cynical. I'm like, why am I so cynical? So about eight months ago, maybe even closer to a year ago, I just cut it out. I just removed it from my diet, you know? And I'm like... I'm becoming less cynical. You know, it, it, there's just something about it. And, and a little less biting, my sarcasm, which again is a blessing and a curse. Um, like my sarcasm would be so fed by that and, and, and now it's like, no, I'm, uh, that's getting a little bit more tailored. It'll never, that side of glory and that'd be fixed. But um, I'm like, no, but it, it's helping, right? And, and so this again is gonna come back to that issue of conscience uh, in Philippians chapter four. Paul gives us some direction. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true and whatever is honorable and whatever is just and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent and worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That is a promise. That is a promise. And I keep trying to roll it back in on that whole idea of heaven laid in the soul, that center point being God, honoring Christ as Lord in all that we do, right? And, and, and we're never gonna get there to where it is sheer delight in him if we don't then kind of look at the conscience and go, how, how do I filter this to orient it toward God, to draw close to him, to press in more to who he is, to focus on the things that he finds delightful and lovely and true and perfect and just. And from all of that, what is the end? The peace of God will be with you, right? So when people say, I don't have any peace, I have a good reason why you probably don't, right? If you go, I don't have any joy, I, I think I have a good reason why you, you don't have joy. Or you don't exude hope, again, I think I have a good reason. To say, this is probably what the problem is. We're not pressing in. We're not seeking out. We're not orienting the conscience around the things of God. We spend our days taking in a lot of other stuff, not all of which is sinful, but it is earthly, and it doesn't fortify and build. It doesn't uplift our spirit. It just sort of sucks us dry. 
And what the world needs from the church is not a bunch of withered, dry Christians. The world is desperately looking to see true, authentic, passionate, positive faith. And I don't mean positive like, hey, positive, suckers and gumdrops for everybody. I mean positive as in certain. I'm positive of this. And it drives everything I do, everything I think, drives my hopes and ambitions, drives my faith. See, that's the good conscience. And so Peter's just laying out, man, this is how we change the world. Right? You go back to the early church, and I know I've said this throughout the series, but you go back to the early church, and you go, how did these guys change their world? How did they spin the Roman Empire upside down? It wasn't through might. wasn't through power. It wasn't through brilliant marketing. The gospel is not a brilliant marketing strategy. It's not. You're a sinner, and you're going to go to hell apart from Christ. That doesn't sell well ever. Ever. You know, we kind of go, well, people are, are, they don't like the gospel today. I'm like, they've never liked the gospel. Listen to its message. Die to yourself and live for him and turn from your sins and follow Christ. All that stuff is not, it doesn't sell well. So how did the church turn the world upside down without a brilliant marketing strategy and without power and might? Here it is right here. They were so desperate for God, it changed their life and people couldn't deny the change. They said, there's something different about you. When you are cursed, you bless. When you're hated, you love. When you seem like you should be hopeless, you have hope. When nothing's going your way, you have joy and you have peace. That is world-changing. And that's what our world needs to see today. That's what we need to get to, is that kind of transformation. I look at my own life in this and I go, man, I... I just squander so much time. I squander it. Instead of making the investment to these things, right, where my apologetic is righteous and relational and rooted and reasoned and all these kinds of things where it's real, instead of making those investments, I I just get distracted on other things. It's wasteful of my time, which is funny because both Jesus and Paul said, "Uh, use your time really wise in these last dark days. This is how we should use our time. I want to see more of God laid in me so I might be more of this kind of apologist to the world around me, right? It says, live that way so that having a good conscience when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Even if they disagree with you, even if they think your Christianity is nuts, your gospel is narrow and Jesus is too exclusive and all the things uh, that they could at least look and go, But you know what? You believe it. You sincerely believe it. You really own it. You're not hypocritical. You're not, you you get it. Matter of fact, I remember hearing a a story about David Hume, the Scottish philosopher that had no interest in God whatsoever or love of God. But the story is he would get up at five in the morning to go listen to George Whitfield, the evangelist, preach out in the open air. And one time somebody asked Hume, they said, "Uh, why are you here? You don't believe what that guy is preaching. And, and, and Hume's response was, yes, I don't believe it, but he does. He does. And I'm here because he believes it. And, and that's that thing I'm talking about where just sincerely from my heart, I, that's the place that I pray we, we make it to as, as Christians of our culture. Where people go, you know what, I don't believe it, but he does. 
She does. They do. It's obvious. It's in their soul, man. It's in their DNA. It's so rooted in them. It's undeniable. I disagree, but it's undeniable in them. See, if that was to be true, man, I, th- I, think, I think it would be such a positive force in our culture of, of seeing just transformation because it would be real Christianity in play, in action, in powerful ways, right? I mean, I think about people even like Mother Teresa. Like, she could get an audience anywhere because they're like, she, she's all in, man. You know, she would go to the president's prayer breakfast and be like, okay, we're gonna talk about abortion, and people are like, anybody else shows up, they don't let her do it. It's mother, just let her talk, man. You know, it's like, there's just, they respect her even when they disagree with her, right? So it's that kind of spirit, right? So, man, they might slander, but they still see your good behavior, and it's undeniable, right? Then Peter reminds us in verse 17. He says, it is better to suffer for doing good that if it be God's will... We would, just, we would suffer, right? It's better to suffer for good than it is for suffering for evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter loves to bring us back to Jesus as the example, right? So he's just like, you know what? Here's the deal. Life is gonna be suffering. You might as well suffer for Christ than suffer for being foolish. And you should take your courage and your strength from the fact that the Lord that you follow suffered for you. So suffer for him as he suffered for you. Right? It's pretty plain for Peter. And so he just reminds us. He grounds it back in the gospel. He grounds it back in Christ. He grounds it back in that sacrifice. And we should so be appreciative we're willing to suffer for his namesake. That's a part of our apologetic too. We just are willing to do it because we bought in. Then from there, Peter says this. He says, "Being uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You look at this and say, what is Peter talking about? You know what I want to tell you? Nobody has a clue. Right? Like, I'm tracking along in this passage. Okay, let me get this straight. Uh, You know, I'm supposed to be okay with being persecuted. I need to have a reason for the hope that lies within me. I need to be doing it with gentleness and respect. I need to have a good, clean conscience. I need to be willing to suffer for good. What are you now talking about, Peter? Like, honestly, I hit that text, and here's the problem. Uh, Nobody knows what Peter's talking about. Like, commentators will look at that last part and be like, like, if Peter were here, we'd be like, dude, what were you talking about? And I think Peter would be like, yeah, I don't remember what I was saying there. You know, like, like I don't know what I'm talking about. And Noah and his spirits and, blah, blah, you know, that guy. So it's like, we really don't know what to do with this. In the sense of Peter sees this as a part of his defense. And, and if we try to at least simplify it, it seems that what he's saying in some very convoluted, nobody can follow him kind of way, because this is considered one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret, just because nobody really knows what he's fully trying to say there, but if we simplified it, he would say, here's the bottom line. Um, Jesus preached victory, 
right? That ultimately went to the spirits in prison, whomever they were, whatever that was, and ultimately, he's victorious. He preached victory, and he experienced victory through the resurrection, and he experiences victory in his ascension, and somehow Peter's kind of pointing to that. And saying, ultimately, this is the big idea. This is the hope that is within us. The gospel is victory. Resurrection is victory. Ascension is victory. And we should, as we live our lives, live it in the spirit of knowing there is victory. That is our hope. Now, how Peter intends for us to understand all of this, like I said, I don't even want to try. Because I don't really know. But it's, it, it's the kernel of that. And that's, again, my hope and my prayer for us as God's people, that what we'll begin to do is to not kind of hang our heads low and say, look what's happening to our culture, and it's all coming apart, and Christianity is being marginalized, and others are being inflated, and all these kinds of, we we can do that, but that's not how we should be facing it. How we should face it is, wait, there's victory, right? Right? Because Christ died and rose, we too will one day rise. And therefore, we live our lives in that hope, in that peace, in that joy, in that strength, in that pressing in, in that goodness of conscience, in that compelling, life-shaping way. That is how we need to live. And, and I'm with you in this journey, all right? Um, I, I, I wrestled a lot with this passage this week. I told Ellen, I said, I'm really struggling with this one because there's so many different directions I want to go with it because it was so confronting me just transparently. It was just confronting me because I'm like, would, would anybody look at Matt Boswell's life and say, you know what, that is just compelling Christianity in play. You know, and I'm, I'm not, I don't, don't come to me afterwards and tell me yes or no, please don't. Um, you come up to me, hey, no, you're not compelling. Um, you know, or don't tell me I am because I know I'm not, right? So, uh, but, but I, 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 it's why I started reading that Henry School book again. I'm like, I want to be there. I want to have my life be an apologetic, right? I want it to be that thing where the evidence of God is displayed in a life that deeply, passionately desires him. To where, again, like I said, well, people could look at my life and say, you know what, I don't agree with your gospel, but you clearly believe it. That's the win. Because it shows that, yes, this gospel really does change people. And yes, this God, when you taste and see he's good, you don't want to give up. You want more. You want more. And that is to be our prayer. And so right now, I'm going to have us pray as a church. And, and my prayer is going to be that. Right? My prayer is going to be that we will ache for God. That we will ache for Christ. We will desperately desire the Spirit to just thrust into our life a desperation for him. And so I want you to pray with me right now about that. Jesus, that is what we seek of you and from you. We, we need that. I mean, I'm, I'm certain, you know, that what our, our, our world needs, certainly in the next couple of decades, is not that we have a cleaner, crisper argument. It's not that we become more defensive or militant within our environment. What they need are people that are positive. Positive that you are real. Positive that your promises are sure. Positive that as we press into you more, we are changed. Positive that when the conscience is in alignment to you, when it's not corrupted, but when it is clear and clean, that that then shapes the deepest recesses of our faith and spirituality in you. 
And so I, I pray that for us. I just pray that we wouldn't be wasteful with our time. I pray that we would be wise with what we put before our eyes, what we jam into our ears, because we know that everything informs, everything shapes. I think about those words of Paul in Philippians again, where you know, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is right, just those kinds of things that we would, we would set our minds and therefore set our conscience and therefore set our hearts on those things. I pray that we wouldn't do this out of some sense of obligation or self-discipline, but rather we would say that is altogether sensible and the, the greatest pleasure and delight is found in those things, that this is really about true joy, true peace. And so I pray for us as a church that that will be uh, where our hearts are knit to you. I pray that we wouldn't squander our time. I pray that we would have lives that are truly compelling, undeniable, that we respond different, that we interact different, that we see the world different. That there's just no question about that. And that's a long journey, Jesus. That, that's, that's a long journey. But we ask that you would do that. We love you, we need you, we thank you, and we praise you in your name.